KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. The indoor mask mandate is lifted, but is it too soon? I think it'd be better to sit tight for a couple weeks at least and see that circulating level of virus get down even lower. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego starts a new effort to get homeless people off the street. The police are using a criminalization to drive people away. A new law in Carlsbad hopes to stop the thefts of catalytic converters. And we'll hear the pros and cons of San Diego's expensive water projects. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Masks can come off today for vaccinated Californians in many indoor spaces. Signs of easing restrictions are popping up everywhere. Disneyland announced it's dropping its indoor masking mandate tomorrow. The music festival Coachella also announced it will be removing its COVID restrictions this spring. And nationwide new COVID cases are down 43% from a week ago. But the delay in authorization for young children's vaccinations is a reminder that life is not yet back to normal. Here to talk with us about those topics and more is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. And Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Maureen. Good to be with you again. Now, today, the mask mandate is lifted in California for vaccinated people. The CDC says it's too soon. What do you think? Well, I'd have to agree with the CDC on this one. Uh, the problem is we went to this back in May, as you recall, when we said uh, masks could be uh, spared and not necessary in people who were vaccinated. And there's no honor system uh, about people uh, using masks. And our caseload is still high in this Omicron wave. I think it'd be better to sit tight for a couple of weeks at least and see that circulating level of virus get down even lower before we loosen everything up. I think the idea of having a date picked, as the governor did of this date, rather than going through metrics, the latter is a much preferable approach. Now, tomorrow, the governor is set to unveil his plan for moving the state into the endemic phase of COVID-19. Can you explain what transitioning to an endemic phase could mean for California? 
Well, I've reviewed that plan. It's called the SMARTER plan with each of those letters of SMARTER standing for something like SHOTS, S, and M, mask. But this plan is a preparedness uh, plan because endemic doesn't mean end. It means that we hope to get to a low level of virus that is achieve containment. Uh, And we expect that there will be more problems in the months ahead. And my critique of that plan that's going to be unveiled tomorrow, it's good, but it could be even more bold and more comprehensive. We are not doing well, uh, in my view, for vaccination and boosters in California. And uh, also, we're not using the tools like uh, digital surveillance through smartwatches. And I'd like to see a more bold plan that incorporates these issues, as well as Uh, trying to get a lot more of our people in the vaccinated group. Now, state health officials say it's not time yet to change masking rules for schools. They will reassess that at the end of the month. What types of metrics would you want to see before removing the mask requirement in schools? Well, similar to the overall uh, policy, if we can get the circulating virus at very low levels, as we see by test positivity and uh, the numbers of cases, then I think we are in great shape for for everything that we're doing across the board, including schools. But it's still high. You know, there's this kind of premature jump to where we hope to be in the next couple of weeks. And since this has been going on for well over two years and everyone is so sick of this, what's a couple more weeks just to be safe? Now, with numbers going down across the country, are you confident that the Omicron surge is on its way out? Well, it sure looks that way. This has been the most rapid descent in cases and hospitalizations that we've ever seen from the beginning of the pandemic. So it's very encouraging. I should say, Maureen, we still don't really know the mechanism of how we get this phenomenally rapid descent because of the ascent that was this hyper transmission that was seen in many countries throughout the world. So there's still some mysteries about this strain of the virus. Nonetheless, you know, we are not containing the virus globally, no less uh, in this country. So we face the evolution of another version of the virus in the months ahead. We may well have a nice quiet time for a stretch, hopefully a long stretch, but because we have still half of the population of the world to get protected uh, and um, we don't have good containment, we face uh, further troubles, unfortunately, uh, in the times ahead. Another often overlooked protection against COVID is one that you've been writing about, and that's natural immunity as the result of a past COVID infection. Now, you say the U.S. has not recognized the value of infection-induced natural immunity. Tell us about that. No one wants anyone to get COVID intentionally. That would be reckless. But for those people who've had it confirmed, they do have some immunity. And the really best way to get rid of this divisiveness that we've had, uh, because the natural immunity can't rightfully says, hey, we have some immunity from our infection, is to make sure, and we're going to see a lot more data from that today, that they get one shot. Now the real one shot, one and done story, because that one shot gets them to the level of three shots, that is two shots and a booster. So we can just get the people who had prior uh, infections with a single dose of a vaccine. We can get so much better protection for them and for everyone. Now, last week, the Food and Drug Administration announced a delay in the authorization for Pfizer-BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine for children under five. How long a delay do you expect? 
Well, it's probably going to be at least a couple of months. And the reason being is that, unfortunately, when Pfizer went ahead with this trial in less than age five, they used a dose they wanted to go for safety. And it proved to be very safe, but not that effective in bringing up a, a strong immune response against infection. So I think it's the right choice. Uh, in the meantime, you know, we do know that having everyone else in the household, parents, uh, older children, teens, getting them vaccinated has much protection that it provides for the younger children. I want to circle back on something that you've been bringing up. You know, we are looking at another spring with great hopes of getting back to normal. We know what happened to that hope last year. What do you think we should be prepared for? Do you think this virus will take another turn? I think it's pretty likely, uh, but obviously we all hope it won't. Uh, But because we have just so many people in whom the virus can evolve within, that is the immunocompromised, uh, and because there's just so many people out there that are still unprotected throughout the world, uh, we, we face more evolution of the virus and potentially We've been very lucky so far that our vaccines might not hold up nearly as well, certainly against severe disease that causes hospitalizations and deaths. On the other hand, if we can get these pills at scale production and everybody had access to them quickly, if need be, when they had a positive test, which can abort the the infection and, and drop the viral load dramatically and quickly, Basically, we could get to a point where even a new variant wouldn't be a significant threat. So I'm actually quite optimistic if we get our drug story straight, particularly on the pill side, uh, and that we are able to eventually have a variant-proof vaccine. So we don't have to rely anymore on boosters that were directed to the original strain. So I think the tools are getting assembled now that we will get back to a very positive comfort zone, uh, not just for the next few months, but durably. Uh, But we will have coronavirus out there for years to come. That's why we need strategies like uh, better drugs, uh, wide-scale availability of those drugs, and a better vaccine that will get really uh, uh, a variant-proof story for years to come. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, thank you very much. Thank you. Residents living at the Sports Arena Boulevard homeless encampment are now being cited for living out on the streets. San Diego Mayor Tom Gloria ordered the sweep, which started on Monday, but some advocates are questioning the timing of it ahead of the San Diego homeless count next week. Joining me is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman, who has been covering this story. Matt, welcome. Hey, Jade. So why are city officials increasing enforcement and handing out citations to people living at the homeless encampment right now? In short, they say it's because there's space inside of shelters. And they say as long as there's space inside of shelters, they will be doing progressive enforcement. Going back a little bit on this, Jade, uh, the city started this big push to clean up this midway homeless encampment about two weeks ago. Similar to what they do downtown. You know, they send in police and they send in uh, some city crews with the trash trucks and they have people move their stuff, whatever's left over, they end up throwing away. Now, they're not making people leave. They're not citing anybody. But since then, that was about two weeks ago, uh, the city shelter beds, they weren't 
accepting a lot of intakes because they had a lot of outbreaks from homeless residents who were staying there. Um, that's now changed. They're now accepting people again. And so the city's saying, hey, this is part of the normal process in terms of when we have shelter beds available, we're going to be going out and doing this progressive enforcement. It goes from citations and you can work your way up to possibly getting to arrest. So a lot of focus on this right now because this cleanup recently started, uh, but the city's saying, hey, this is the normal process. Colleen Kosak, who's an attorney representing some of the people living at the sports arena encampment, suggests the city has decided to increase enforcement to alter the upcoming homeless count. All so that what, on February 24th, when they come around to do the point in time count and the mayor has chased everybody off the street, he's going to what, pat himself on the back? So Matt, what does she mean by that? Well, her and some other advocates that really work on the ground with these people that are out there, you know, numerous times during the week, giving them food and water, different things. They think that this uh, could be part of an effort to uh, scatter homeless residents ahead of the the point in time counts coming up next week. Um, and that gives a regional view of where we're at in terms of homelessness. There's federal funding that's tied to the number of people that they find that are living on the streets. And they're saying that it's so much easier to count all these people when they're right here in this encampment. Um, and by scattering them, it's going to make them harder to count. And then the mayor might be able to go back and say, hey, look, there's lower number of people living on the streets. Um, I'm reducing homelessness. So that's sort of their point there. What's the city's reaction to that accusation? They say that that's simply just not true. You know, again, they say this is part of the normal procedure um, in terms of, hey, we have shelter beds available now. And so that's why we're doing this enforcement again. Um, and they also point out that, like I mentioned before, there's federal dollars that are tied to the count here. Uh, so they say that it's in their best interest to have a very, very accurate count here. Um, so they say that this is just totally not true. How are community members and other advocates reacting to this situation? Well, we know that uh, Ms. Cusack, she's an attorney. She's representing quite a bit of people down there. Um, and she's actually, according to a Voice of San Diego article, she's actually met with San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria. Uh, she's been threatening some legal action regarding some of the enforcement there. And they're trying to work out a middle ground in terms of this progressive enforcement. I don't know if that's stopping it entirely or maybe having it more drawn out, like a drawn out process. She wants people to be able to, like, if you get a ticket for encroachment, go through the process before you reach that next tier in the uh, progressive enforcement step. So um, we're still seeing a lot of people going down there. You know, they're all out there with their phones, a lot of different advocates uh, monitoring the police down there. A lot of people not happy with how this is being handled, um, but trying to work with the police to come up with a better solution. The encampment was cleared out a couple of weeks ago. How many people are living there now? Yeah. So when the city started this process, they estimated there's probably about 180 or so people living there. Um, and that's kind of on both sides there of Sports Arena Boulevard uh, in the back there. Um, since they started doing the cleanup, some of those homeless advocates that are on the ground maybe estimate that maybe about a third of the camp have left, a third of the people have moved on. Um, but I will say there's a lot of people there who say, hey, we set up this encampment because we had nowhere else to go. And this was our means to like set up a community to survive. And so a lot of them say that they don't plan on going anywhere. And how many people have been cited or arrested recently? So since they started doing this progressive enforcement on this uh, midway encampment, um, it's kind of a slow process. They don't go out and hit everybody in one day. On Monday, the first day, 
they made 17 contacts. Um, and from that, they wrote a few citations for people. And that includes things like encroachment, um, things like illegal lodging. Um, so they're trying to crack down there. Now, we, we did see some people who, who were arrested. We found out that one person was arrested, not because they refused to leave the encampment or like tied to encroachment. Uh, it was for a warrant. But we will see this enforcement continuing. Uh, this is just sort of the beginning of it for this midway encampment, which as we've seen in the last few weeks has gotten a lot of attention. You know, when police approached people during Monday's sweep, were they offering them help to find shelter? Yes, they were offering them help to find shelter. And basically the way the city says it goes. So like, you know, if they know on a certain given day they have 30 shelter beds available, they'll do enforcement until they can fill those shelter beds. Um, They don't want to be doing enforcement uh, when there's uh, no shelter beds. That's actually part of like a kind of a complicated legal settlement that happened recently. And there's also, I will say to Jade, the police, when they're out there, uh, they say that they don't do these sweeps during inclement weather. So if it's like raining and stuff like that, they're not going to be going out there. Um, but as long as shelter beds are available and the weather's good, they're going to be going out there and doing this enforcement, not just in the Midway District too, but this is happening across the city of San Diego. So um, people that are living downtown, they may start to see more enforcement again now that those shelter beds are there. Some of the homeless population living on the streets say they do not want to live in a shelter. What are their reasons for that? Yeah, that's something that we hear uh, quite a bit from people that they don't want to live in a congregate setting. And that can be for a lot of reasons. You know, uh, some people say they just don't do well around other people inside a large setting. Um, some people, you know, have been incarcerated before and say that that's a reason why they don't do well with people in those settings. But the kind of catch 22 is, that's really the only thing that the city is offering here. And we're hearing from, you know, uh, Ms. Kusak, who's out there, the attorney saying uh, that, you know, the shelters are dangerous. And, and as we've seen with these uh, COVID outbreaks that are happening there. Um, so it's really going to be interesting to see if there's some sort of middle ground that can be found there because you have, you know, on one hand, the city saying, hey, we have these shelters, they're congregate, and it's all we have. And then you have, you know, a lot of homeless residents saying, well, I don't want to go there. So what's the end game here? I mean, will this enforcement continue until everyone's off the streets? So we're hearing from the city that they're going to continue their, quote, compassionate approach here. Um, But they say that they still see a lot of health and safety issues that are happening at that encampment. And so they say that they will continue enforcement. Uh, They say a lot of different things from sanitary conditions there uh, to reported crime that's been happening there. Uh, And the mayor says that that just can't happen. You know, he he says he doesn't want this to blow up into a full-blown crisis. So it's kind of, you know, what's the barometer? Is there like a line where one day they're going to take their foot off the gas pedal in terms of enforcement? We really don't. No, but as we know right now, you know, the city says as long as there's shelter beds available, they're going to be going out there and continuing this enforcement, not just in the midway, but across the whole city. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you. Thanks, Jade. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world class dealerships to Carlsbad including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh.
In an effort to combat the growing theft of catalytic converters, Carlsbad has become the first city in the county to pass legislation aimed at addressing the issue. The new law would make it illegal for anyone other than a licensed recycler to possess a catalytic converter without valid proof of ownership. The law, which will go into effect next month, coincides with a similar effort introduced by California Senator Brian Jones of Santee to tighten up regulations on converter theft statewide. Joining me now with more on this issue is Captain Christy Calderwood with the Carlsbad Police Department. Captain Calderwood, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So how does this new law tighten up some of the issues surrounding the theft of catalytic converters? Well, we'd like to educate the residents in regards to protecting themselves, but we'd also like to bring sanctions to those that are victimizing our citizenry. And we hope that by having this new ordinance within the city of Carlsbad that's prohibiting the unlawful possession of a catalytic converter, that it will not only bring education to people that could potentially be victimized, but also the criminals that are roaming the streets, particularly at night, and are victimizing people by taking their catalytic converters. So will this new law make it easier for officers in your department to police this crime? We absolutely believe that it will. The challenge in this type of crime that we have seen is that it is very difficult for our local DA's office to prosecute. And the reason for that is that these catalytic converters traditionally do not have any identifying information on them. They do not have any um, plate numbers or VIN numbers. So when we pull people over and have multiple recovered catalytic converters that we believe are stolen, and we have detained somebody who we think is uh, the suspect, the challenge is trying to locate an identified victim. So we're trying to move forward with an ordinance that if you come into Carlsbad and you try to steal a catalytic converter from one of our citizens, and we pull you over with the unlawful possession of one, we will be able to convict you hopefully through our city attorney's office for a misdemeanor crime of possession of the catalytic converter. What advice would you give to people looking to deter would-be thieves? We've held events where we have partnered with a local auto body shop so that citizens can come and get their catalytic converter engraved with either their VIN or license plate number for free. We have had many events where we have our senior volunteers hand out flyers to potential victims and the Toyota Prius is the most targeted vehicle in a crime like this. So we try to educate our citizens as well so that they are not victimized. So the message to the would-be criminals is don't come to the city of Carlsbad and think that you're going to get away with it because we are out there looking for people with both uniformed and non-uniformed officers and we have a new ordinance that is going into effect to help us prosecute these crimes. So let's take a step back here. I mean, what is a catalytic converter and why are they so highly sought after by thieves in the first place? It basically takes all of the effects that come out of your vehicle and create smog and dirty up the environment. So it's kind of a cleaning tool, if you will. And there's extremely precious metals that are inside of these catalytic converters that range, depending on, you know, at the height of rhodium, for example, you could get $30,000 per ounce at one point in 2021. It's averaging about $11,000 per ounce but the platinum, palladium, and rhodium is extremely expensive. So they can take them to recycling centers, and we're cracking down on the recycling centers as well, making sure that they are in compliance. But they run anywhere between, on the low end, very low end, $300, all the way up to $1,000 a piece per converter. 
So you mentioned recycling places or buying these stolen converters. What can you do on that end to deter this type of crime? What we have learned is that a lot of the thieves are selling them to what are called fences. So it's kind of like a middleman who is then selling the precious metals to places outside of our county, places outside of even our country. And the pandemic has played a lot into these precious metals increasing in price. So as everyone knows, there's been a lot of um, supply chain issues. There's been a lot of, you could look at anything on the market, whether it's a vehicle all the way to things at the grocery store and supply chain. And so it's driving up the prices of these precious metals. So we're finding that they're selling them really to the fences. And so our goal is to find out who these people are that are acting as the middlemen and try to break that down. You mentioned that Priuses are targeted more heavily. Why is that? So the Prius one, it's extremely easy to get to. It's, it takes, like I said, less than a minute for somebody to steal one of these if they have the right tools. And the Prius, because of the way that it's uh, made and it's a hybrid, the precious metals are more expensive. And what kind of recourse does the average citizen have if they find themselves the victim of this kind of crime? So at this point, it's somewhat difficult. You know, what happens is most people will wake up in the morning and get in their vehicle and turn it on and they will hear a loud deafening sound, which is how they realize that they have been victimized. They will then hopefully call the police and report it. A lot of times they do not. And they'll take the vehicle to get fixed or have it towed to get fixed, which costs anywhere between $1,000 and $2,000 to replace these. And then when we take the crime reports and work with our district attorney's office, we're doing everything we can to ultimately locate the suspect, but that's very challenging in itself. So as far as recourse for the victims, at this point, there isn't a lot. And that's why we wanted to introduce this new ordinance so that when we have somebody that is detained and we have these catalytic converters in our possession, we don't just have to release them because we don't have an identified victim. We hope that there will be further sanctions down the line for people that are in possession of these. Right now for the ordinance in Carlsbad, it will be a misdemeanor charge, but there are also other charges that we plan on being able to book people for, which can include grand theft, which is a felony, possession of burglary tools, and anything else that fits the scenario that is occurring. And what type of charge does a recycling center who's taking in these stolen parts, how are they prosecuted? How are the middlemen in this prosecuted? It seems like the low person on the totem pole, we've got that. But what about the people who are really driving this? So the people that are really driving this, if like if a, if a suspect states or somebody at a recycling center states anything about working on vehicles or taking in these catalytic converters and doesn't have the correct paperwork to show that they work for a recycling center or are transporting them for some legitimate reason, which it's very unlikely that somebody's going to be driving around with a used, dirty, detached catalytic converter. So there is a California vehicle code for owning or operating a chop shop, which is something new that we are looking into as far as charging people with. If they possess burglary tools and have likely stolen catalytic converters in their possession, they may meet the criteria for operating a mobile chop shop. And finally, what challenges do you see to actually finding thieves driving down the street with stolen catalytic converters in their car? Sure, that's always the challenge, you know, but we have some super smart, intelligent officers that are 
working day and night to combat this rising trend. This is extremely important to us in the city of Carlsbad. Property crimes are, you know, one of our highest crime trends throughout the years. So we have officers, we're training them on what to look for. We are deploying them in areas there is an increase in thefts like this. And we're just telling them and showing them the right things to look for that are suspicious and don't seem right. And when they make traffic stops that are proactive and they are detaining people that will have multiple catalytic converters in the vehicle with them, then they now have a new tool to help combat the rising trend. Do you think this translates to pretextual stops? I don't think so. I don't want to go down the road of um, the pretextual stops. I mean, this is something that we hope is is a a tool that if somebody is found to be in the illegal possession, it just helps them be prosecutable down the line because a lot of times we don't have that, like I said, the identified victim. But we're not changing any way to go out and pull over people that we probably wouldn't have pulled over before. We're pulling people over for mostly moving violations, but these traffic stops will lead to other crimes and other types of arrests. All right. I've been speaking with Carlsbad Police Captain Christy Calderwood. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. More than a dozen antitrust bills targeting big tech are in play in the nation's capital right now, and Silicon Valley has gone full court press to kill or soften the legislative attack. This game is fast and confusing and hard to follow. For the California Report, KQED's Rachel Myro gives us a courtside view from their Silicon Valley desk. These bills primarily target Amazon, Apple, Google, and Meta. These four have become many things to many people, but they are all multi-billion dollar giants in advertising. Also, other specialties like retail, apps, entertainment. Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, one of the lawmakers leading the antitrust charge, has acknowledged the odds are daunting. Because we are up against a lot. We have two lawyers on our staff that do antitrust, and the tech companies have 2,500 lobbyists and probably 10,000 lawyers. Also, tech-funded think tanks, whose talking points are remarkably consistent and also possibly accurate. Baron Soka of Tech Freedom in D.C., for instance, argues many of the bills are rushed and poorly written. And he warns Democrats the efforts to win support from key Republicans has meant there are ticking time bombs in the bills that could explode on Democrats and their allies the next time Republicans regain control of the White House. We are legislating the way that that cartoon shows the railroad bridge being built out over the canyon as the train is going, except we don't even know what the bridge looks like or where it's going. You'll hear remarkably similar concerns from many in the California delegation, including both U.S. senators as well as congressional representatives like Zoe Lofgren of Silicon Valley. There's the rushed, poorly written legislation argument. There's the weaponizing the law in ways that could favor Republicans argument. And last but not least, there's the worry that too many of the bills target just four self-dealing monopolies. One of the amendments that I offered was uh, they had written in such a way that it very cleverly exempted Microsoft, even though Microsoft is as big as, you know, some of the other companies being targeted. Lofgren and others who voiced objections continue to take money from the likes of Amazon, Google, and Meta. Does that money influence her position? Lofgren says no. 
Well, I think that's obvious baloney. And if that were the case, Anne and I would not have introduced our privacy bill, which is, you know, would require actually a huge change in the business model of any uh, tech company that uses, uh, relies on the data of its users. The Online Privacy Act Lofkin reintroduced with fellow Silicon Valley Congresswoman Anna Eshoo is considered a serious attack on the trade in personal data that's bread and butter for mega conglomerates these days. And it's not the only bill considered a serious threat by the likes of Google CEO Sundar Pichai, speaking here during a recent earnings call. We are genuinely concerned uh, that they could break a wide range of popular services we offer to our users, uh, all the work we do to make our products safe, private, secure, etc., and, and in some cases can hurt American competitiveness by disadvantaging solely U.S. companies. Dr. Jennifer King follows data and privacy for the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. She's not holding her breath for this Congress to act on any kind of revolutionary reform. One big reason why? She says both political parties have grown quite fond of using targeted advertising themselves. We now have a legislative structure that's just as dependent on those data practices that the commercial sector is dependent on, behavioral targeting and marketing practices that are really at issue in all these cases. The only thing everybody seems to agree on is some kind of new legislation is needed, if only to bolster funding of federal regulators. But what kind of legislation exactly? That's where the consensus falls apart. I'm Rachel Myro in Menlo Park. Yesterday's rain was a welcome change, briefly interrupting a two-month dry spell in San Diego. State officials are predicting dire statewide drought conditions this year, which could mean more water use restrictions. But San Diego has gone a long way toward insulating itself from water shortages. Conservation efforts combined with projects like Carlsbad's desalination plant leave the county in a better position to weather a drought. It also leaves us with some of the highest water rates in the state, higher than Los Angeles County. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Joshua Emerson-Smith to talk about the pros and cons of the county's water policy. And Joshua, welcome to the program. Good to be here. San Diegans have seen their water rates creep up year after year. About how much more are we paying in comparison to L.A.? Well, our wholesale rate, which for untreated water, which is $1,474 an acre foot right now, and an acre foot is about enough water to cover an acre foot deep, that's about $400 an acre foot more than what they're paying in L.A., so quite a, quite a bit more. And of course, that kind of trickles down, if you would, to the consumer. And Absolutely. San Diego has always been at the end of the pipeline for state water supplies. Is that why the County Water Authority has launched its own water projects? Yeah, that's part of it. We're at the end of the pipeline when it comes to delivering water from the Sacramento Bay Delta and the Colorado River. But we've also had a little bit of bad blood with our wholesaler, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, after a dust up in the early 90s over drought restrictions. And ever since then, the Water Authority here in San Diego has been looking to develop its own supplies for water and use less and less of the Met water. Tell us about the projects that it started and how they add to our water bills. 
Well, it's everything from the raising the San Vicente Dam or the Olivahane Dam to other emergency storage projects to perhaps most notably the Carlsbad desalination plant, which uh, has some of the highest water rates uh, around. And apparently after taking on whopping debts to increase the water supply, the county found itself up against a decrease in demand. How did that happen? I mean, no one really saw this coming, to be fair. But since 2010, so over the last decade, demand for water from our wholesaler has decreased 40%. It's hard to overstate how significant that is. A lot of it is due to conservation. So people have ripped out their lawns with turf rebate programs, mandatory drought conservation during the last uh, drought was pretty significant. So people are just using less water. On top of that, local retail agencies are developing their own resources, which is largely recycling projects. And so that means that they're also demanding less from our water wholesaler here in the region. Even though the county's water projects may help us get through droughts without a water shortage, there are San Diegans who can't afford to pay their water bills right now. Is there any plan to help them? Yeah, I mean, that that's the big issue, right? We have Farmers who are saying they can't afford the cost of water, and we've seen demand from the agricultural sector drop pretty severely. But now increasingly low-income folks and even middle-income folks are saying they're having a hard time paying their water bills. And this is something that state and local officials are grappling with because it's hard to design these projects Uh, given the state rules around increasing water rates. You can't just increase water rates to redistribute the funds. So we're trying to figure this out. The state, the answer is probably going to come from the state in, in terms of relief programs. But it's one of those issues where we see we see it on the horizon. People are increasingly unable to afford their water bills. It's pretty significant. Apparently, there was some effort by the County Water Authority to try to uh, market the water rates as something in comparison to other things people are paying for to be pretty good, but that didn't go over very well. Tell us about that. Right. So the Water Authority is under increased pressure to deal with the affordability issue, something that it really hasn't been focused on in the past. In the past, the Water Authority has been hyper-focused on reliability, building all of these different projects to ensure that we don't face significant cutbacks. So now it's facing this pressure to figure out how to keep rates under control. And at a recent meeting, they talked about a messaging campaign where they would compare the cost of tap water versus bottled water, gasoline, milk, you name it. And a lot of the member, uh, a lot of the people on the board, right? These are the head water officials for all of the retail water agencies across the region. They kind of balked at that idea. They said, you know, we should be figuring out not how to justify our high rates, but how to lower them or at least keep them from raising even higher. Now, the city of San Diego's pure water recycling program is set to start in a few years. How will that affect water rates? That's going to increase water rates pretty dramatically. Uh, Not only 
is does it mean that the city will be buying less water from the wholesaler, which has this this effect of driving up the price, but it also means that we have to pay for all the infrastructure for building the water recycling. And so it's kind of a double whammy for the ratepayer. It certainly looks like we'll have a lot of water and we certainly may need it as the effects of climate change increase. So could these high prices be seen as an investment in the future? Absolutely. Uh, Right now, we're in a situation where, ironically, it seems like we have more water than we need, than we know what to do with, even though we're in a drought. But going forward, this could pay dividends. Uh, We could see increased reliability into decades to come. The question is, what will the cost of that be? I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Joshua Emerson-Smith. Joshua, thank you. Always a pleasure. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. On the outskirts of Oakland's Chinatown, you can hear the rhythmic pulsing of hot ovens and the steady screech of revolving griddles. The sound hits your ears before your nose picks up the smell of sweet cookie batter. Alicia Wong and her mother, Jamin, say joy and positivity are the not-so-secret ingredients that have kept their business thriving. The California Report magazine intern Izzy Bloom took a look inside the Oakland Fortune Factory, where this mother-daughter duo turns out thousands of handmade cookies every day. Lunar New Year has kept Alicia and her mom, Jamin, busy, working 20-hour days. Alicia says it all starts with that sweet batter. My mom makes a batter every morning. She puts all the ingredients into a giant mixer. When the batter is smooth, it gets funneled into a tube and then pumped out as circles onto hot metal plates. The plates revolve clockwise into a furnace where they bake for about three minutes. And as they come out of the oven, they are soft and pliable for a few seconds. And during that time, we would quickly take a fortune put it in the center, fold it up, and pinch it into a fortune cookie shape. And then they are individually wrapped and sealed. But these cookies aren't made for the end of your meal at a restaurant. They're carefully handcrafted with unique flavors, from strawberry to Sichuan peppercorn chocolate, and ornamented with festive pearls and sugar crystals. And some honor the new year with the Chinese character for tiger, embellished in shimmery gold. Others have chocolate tiger stripes. The tiger is very special for me because it's my mother's year. And the tiger really reminds me of my mom because she's a very determined, fearless woman who is very protective of her family. Jamin is sifting through the cookies and smiles up warmly at her daughter as Alicia translates for her. I'm happy together. Happy. She says that she loves that our cookies are a perfect union of Chinese American culture. It's like a, the cookie itself is 
the best of both worlds. Jamin grew up in China, but she moved to the U.S. in 1999 and raised Alicia in Oakland, not far from the Oakland Fortune Factory, which had a different owner at the time. One of my fondest memories is my mom picking me up after school, uh, grabbing a $2 bag of the broken cookies, which we still have, and it's still $2. So <laughs> I could just go ham, eating, eating the cookies. It was so satisfyingly crunchy. I still love the texture. Six years ago, the Oakland Fortune Factory was about to close down. So Jamin decided to buy it. She'd never even run a business before, and she doesn't speak English. So she'd rely on Alicia for help, but she was in college on the East Coast. It was incredibly difficult trying to run a business that I am not there for across the country with a three-hour time difference. After Alicia graduated from college, she decided to join her mom in running the fortune cookie business full-time. Now it's a whole family affair. Alicia's husband and her sisters are all involved as well. Alicia is taking the business in a whole new direction, infusing it with her passion to support social justice movements like Black Lives Matter. We had the BLM stenciled in gold on the cookie, and the insides were quotes of civil rights leaders to try to inspire discussion Alicia says they were one of the first businesses in Chinatown to stand up and support the Black Lives Matter movement. She says that's because of what her mom would always tell her growing up. She says, well, aside from trying to make money, you have to do something good for society. You have to do something good for others. She wants our cookies to be able to promote um, peace and joy, love between people. But keeping that peace has been difficult over the last few years. A 91-year-old man was violently shoved to the ground in Oakland's Chinatown. The attacks come as a growing number of hate incidents target Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. You know, there's been a lot of like viral videos of like non-Asian individuals attacking or harassing Asian individuals. It really hurts every time I see someone in our community get hurt because that could have been my mom, that could have been my grandpa or my dad. And it makes me incredibly angry that it's still happening. In 2020, Alicia said a group of people came and vandalized Chinatown, smashing the Oakland Fortune Factory's storefront window. It was very distressing. It was very scary because we've never experienced our store getting vandalized before. And we've always felt incredibly safe. But she says she doesn't want to give in to fear. So she's using the business to engage more with her community instead. This year, they're donating a portion of their Lunar New Year cookie sales to the Asian Pacific Fund, which works to address anti-Asian racism. I think the biggest joy that I get out of running the business right now is finally finding a sort of purpose and fulfillment in my cookies. And sharing with her customers the same joy she felt as a kid when her mom would pick her up from school and hand her a bag of those crunchy sweet treats. I'm Izzy Bloom in Oakland.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.